Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Haas, it is a pleasure to see you again. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I wanted to have you back on for the anniversary of Fred Hampton's assassination. Uh, December 4th, I'll be posting this episode. And I wanted to get your interaction and meeting with Fred Hampton. Um, You know, your perspective, your thoughts at the time you met him, and then also your perspective and thoughts on him now. Well, okay. I think we have, we go back to Chicago in the 60s. I had graduated from law school there, taken a job at legal aid, uh, working mostly with groups in the black community to try to build low-income housing. Uh, This was the late 60s in Chicago. There was a lot happening there and around the world. Uh, You'd had the Democratic Convention in 68 uh, that was disrupted by the anti-war movement. You had Dr. King who had come to Chicago to try to break uh, down some of the segregation that was there. The anti-war movement was strong. There was a lot of civil rights activity. Uh, A Puerto Rican group called the Young Lords had changed from being a gang to a group that had fought urban renewal. And there was a lot politically going on in Chicago and in the rest of the world. And one of the things that was happening is in 1966 in Oakland, a group uh, of people, uh, particularly Huey Newton and Bobby Seale started the Black Panther Party. to raise the issue of uh, the treatment of black people, but also demand uh, to demand their freedom uh, and to basically uh, take on many of the issues that face the black community, including poverty, including police brutality, including lack of medical care. And so they had started in Oakland in, in 1966 And uh, in 1968, in Chicago, there was a young uh, black man named Fred Hampton, whose family had moved to Chicago from Louisiana in the 40s. Fred grew up in a working class suburb of Chicago. He was uh, recognized even in high school as a leader. Um, He had led a walkout when black girls were not allowed to be considered for homecoming queens and also to get more black administrators and black teachers at the high school he went to. Uh, He was uh, recognized uh, and became the head of the suburban NAACP in Chicago, uh, and it grew under his leadership. So at this point, I had heard about this young dynamic person named Fred Hampton, and he met some another lawyer that I knew at, at, at uh, in Chicago named Dennis Cunningham. And Dennis had represented Fred after Fred had led a march to the Maywood City Council demanding a swimming pool because there was no place where black kids could swim in the summertime uh, unless they busted or, or took uh, a car or something into Chicago. All the suburban pools were private and did not allow black kids. So Fred and this dentist led a demo. uh, And when they got to the city council, uh, the city council actually used tear gas and refused to meet with them. And then Fred, um, uh, some of the kids who weren't allowed in broke some windows leaving. And then they ended up charging Fred and the dentist with mob action for supposedly inciting a riot. So early on, Fred was a leader. He was demanding things for the black community. And he was also being targeted by the police. And as we learn later, the federal government, because he was a powerful young man. 
Uh, he uh, was a very, very good speaker. Um, and he just had a magnetic personality that drew people to him. And so as he grew in stature and he was able to reach everything from law students to college students to welfare mothers, uh, he became more and more popular. And when Stokely Carmichael came to Chicago, Fred introduced him and Stokely Carmichael said that this is a, a brilliant young leader. And when the Panthers started in Chicago in the fall of 1968, uh, Fred was made the chairman uh, of the Black Panther Party. And at, at that time, he was all of 20 years old. Uh, so he was uh, already a, an important figure. Uh, the, the, the lawyer I knew, Dennis Cunningham, represented Fred in that case of mob action and, and won, and Fred was freed. And Dennis uh, and Fred said, you know, we're starting a Panther chapter here and we need people's lawyers. Every time we go out in the streets to sell a newspaper, uh, we get busted or charged with resisting arrest. We go to a demonstration and the police target us. And so Fred had an influence on Dennis who came to me and two other lawyers. And we, in the summer of 1969, we started the People's Law Office. Um, and it was a lot in order to represent the movement, which was the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, people arrested at the Democratic Convention, uh, the Young Lords, and, and many other groups. Could I ask, um, I, Fred was very charismatic, but have you listened to his speeches? I mean, they, they range kind of wildly. Some that I, I don't know if it was because of his way that he was able to guess talk to the people that he was speaking to and really ad adopt or adapt to the climate of his audience, but it's pretty powerful stuff. It's very powerful. And there's sort of an interesting backstory is that Fred had a sort of a speech defect when he was younger. And so he would practice his elocution and he memorized uh, some of the speeches of Malcolm X and Dr. King so that he overcame this, this speech defect uh, in, intentionally. And uh, as in addition to being a great speaker, he was also known as the king of the nines in Chicago, like you didn't take him on even in just friendly jousting. Uh, but you're right, uh, his ability, his presentation, uh, the ability to move people, as I said, various types of audiences, various people with different kinds of education, uh, white people, black people, brown people, all there was this magnetic energy about Fred, youthful energy, buoyancy, uh, optimism uh, in a certain way, and urgency. And I don't know, he combined those things in his talks. And he had also... As I said, he had picked up the cadence. And so when he gave that famous talk, I'm not going to die slipping on a piece of ice. I'm going to die fighting in the revolution. Why don't you? Or I'm going to live in the revolution. Uh, I think Fred always backed up his words with actions. So when he would say to comrades in the party, show up for the breakfast program on time. You have to be there at six o'clock. We have to make the food. We have to serve the food. We have to meet, meet the parents. But Fred, or sell your quarter of papers. So Fred didn't just tell people there, he'd be there at six o'clock in the morning, making the breakfast, playing with the kids, whatever. So he always backed up what he was asking other people to do uh, with his own life. 
And uh, as you said, he was fearless. And yeah, he would. He was. Uh, uh, he he was a very powerful. Sometimes a rhetorical speaker. Sometimes a funny speaker. Uh, one of that's one of those speeches. He says, "Black power to black people, brown power to uh, brown people," and and he went through the whole sort of list. And then he said, "And, and X power to any people I left out." Uh, but anyway, he had a. Uh, a sense of humor about it sometimes too that that added uh, a dimension to to his talks now when he was forming the chapter in chicago how hands-on was he with obviously everything that was going on or did he have other members that were assisting him in the process well definitely he i mean because he it was because he was such a good organizer that he could motivate other people so he spent time and so Doc Satchel became uh, a head of the free medical program. And Lynn French became one of the main people in the breakfast program. And other people were in charge of the newspapers. And there was political education classes. And so Fred was always trying to get people to take on more responsibility. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and one of the things I think that I heard later from many of the women members was particularly promoting women to be leaders in many ways and to be spokespeople for the Black Panther Party. And no, he wasn't perfect. And as uh, one Panther woman said, we didn't get the Panther Brothers from heaven. But in many ways, Fred promoted, uh, I think, women's leadership and uh, refused to, in some occasion, actually uh, allow Panther women to be used uh, in, in just a sexual way. And uh, so he had a great deal of respect for people. So, but he would, you know, he would go to the Young Lords and he would go to the Young Patriots, an Appalachian white group in Uptown, people who had left West Virginia and Kentucky and had Confederate flags in their caps, but also were suffering from urban renewal, from poverty, from poor housing and police brutality and get see the commonality in, 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 with these people and eventually get them to take the Confederate flag out of their hats, but basically build a coalition. Uh, and I think it was his growing power in meeting people and energizing people that made him such a threat to the government. Do you know what happened with him in the weather underground? It was a mixed relationship. Uh, both the SDS, the national headquarters of SDS was on Madison Street, and they had a printer, and the Panthers were on West Madison Street, and they often used the, uh, the uh, printer of the uh, Weather Underground. And generally, they were comrades uh, and, and worked together in the Weather Underground. Uh, I know that there's a famous speech when the Weather Underground uh, in October of 1969 uh, said, call for the days of rage in which they said, we're going to come to Chicago and take on the police. And Fred Hampton thought that was suicidal and spoke out against it. And that speech was, you know, widely publicized. On the other hand, there are many other times when he said the SDS Weather Underground are our allies here and we rely on them, and they do support us. So it was a mixed bag. It was a, a heavy time. Uh, and so uh, they did have a difference of agreement around that. But I don't think generally, uh, you know, I, I think 
probably he got as much support from the SDS, the weather people. And of course, SDS had split into factions that summer in 1969. But uh, so there was a lot of support. And then there was some very strong disagreement. And Fred spoke out against the days of rage. And generally, his prediction that these were not as many people came as were expected. And they got their butts kicked by the police and picked up criminal records. And uh, their idea was to open a second force so that to, sort of to relieve the police pressure on the Panthers. I personally don't believe it had an effect. I think the Panthers were going to be targeted whether or not whatever that Weather Underground did. But anyway, those were some of the issues that that were being discussed in, in 1969. Do you think that Fred Hampton changed the way the Black Panther Party was either viewed or the way that they were going. It seemed like he had more of a, not, I wouldn't say, I mean, yeah, a balanced approach. It seemed like he was able to talk people down from extremes, whether it was his group or not. I mean, he knew situations and battles that he could win and which ones that seemed like a loss. Yeah, I think he was very strategic, but he was also very militant. And also the Panthers had some pretty heavy rhetoric, you know, uh, and I think to them, off the pig meant get the police who are attacking us out of the community. And maybe to the police, that meant, well, they were all out to kill us. Uh, and so, you know, Fred sometimes picked up on that rhetoric. Uh, but I don't think it was the uh, Fred was had the ability to organize many people around many issues. Uh, and so he could see th see through things. And so. The common need to take on police brutality, the common need to to deal with the issue of prisons and um, and just education uh, and the health and, and the medical clinic and the breakfast program. I think Fred uh, he added the you know the the, the rhetorical flair and uh, of the Panthers to very humane, real programs and a very magnanimous personality uh, and generous personality. So uh, that's who I think Fred was. And he really had the ability to move people. People, uh, my law partner, Flint Taylor, took him to the Northwestern Law School to a standing room crowd and people loved to hear him. Um, so I, I just think he was he was very talented. Uh, and he could he could speak to different groups in different ways, but nevertheless was very conscious of where they were at and how to move them. And I think he was just so full of energy. I remember when I went uh, two or three day, two days before December fourth of nineteen sixty nine, I went to the Panther office because they were we were they were in the process of buying it because they'd been attacked by the police and the FBI in three different raids in 69. And so they were buying the building because they were being evicted. And so I went over there and got to Fred to sign some papers. But here he, he was just like, as I wrote uh, in the, my book, the, the assassination of Fred Hampton, he was sort of like a modern day rapper telling the Panthers, show up for the breakfast program on time, sell your quarter of newspapers, uh, do the, you know this and and they were back and forth and they would get energy from him. So he was like running it and yet it, with an energy that he himself wasn't running it. And you do go do something that I wouldn't do. I'll be there with you. This is what we all have to do.
Can I ask more about the free breakfast program, uh, Fred Hampton's involvement in that? Yeah, well, like in many cities, and it started in Oakland, uh, black kids, or there were many black kids who went to school hungry in Chicago, uh, and there was no public breakfast or food program at the schools. So the Panthers saw this as a way to reach out uh, and talk to people in the community and feed their children. So they started with one uh, at the boys club and uh, later on they had several, uh, I think five or six breakfast programs in different parts of the black community. And they would go early in the morning and, and sometimes at churches, sometimes at community groups at the boys club. And they would, they would solicit uh, contributions from grocery stores, from other people. So they would get the food and then they would make the food and serve it to the kids before school, meet their parents, you know, and one of Fred's thing was, well, I know some of these mothers don't necessarily agree or with socialism, but they sure like seeing their kids being fed their breakfast. And, you know, there's pictures of Fred playing with the kids and pictures of him uh, serving the food just like everybody else did. When you became a Panther, you had an obligation to, to participate in these community programs, whether it was selling newspapers, whether it was going to education classes or breakfast program. This young medical student, Dr. Satchel, became the head of the uh, medical clinic in Chicago. So it was partly a service organization as well as a political organization. Can I ask when Chicago police saw, I guess, would you could you explain maybe them with the Black Panthers when that first happened, like when their first interactions and when the violence started kicking up or Fred Hampton's when when did he pop up on Chicago police's radar? That's not from the good humor incident, is it? Well, it did start in Maywood and he did become a target of the police because of the demonstrations he organized there. He also was accused. Uh, there was a ice cream vendor in the in the in the middle school across the street from where Fred lived. And while they were selling ice cream, somebody came in and held the vendor down and passed out ice cream bars to some kids. And Fred came from across the street to see what was happening. And the police came. And I think with their help, the vendor identified Fred as the person who had supposedly robbed him. So they charged Fred with armed robbery. Um, uh, this was in 1968, uh, but he went to trial in 69. We did not represent him in the trial, but represented him on appeal. And it was a case that should have been handled as a misdemeanor. He had no record. There was no personal injury. Property damage was $51, I think. Of, that was the value of the ice cream that was supposedly handed out. And uh, But he was charged with uh, with, with robbery. And uh, the judge at the end of the trial before sentencing said, well, he's going to get, I'm going to give him probation, but of course he had to wait for a sentencing report. And we had a very ambitious prosecutor in Chicago who was the heir to then Mayor Daley. And Hanrahan uh, had declared war on gangs, declared that gang members were animals. And he, to advance his political career, uh, had, uh, also declared the Panthers were nothing but a gang. So somehow he reached the judge. And so when sentencing came, Fred got two to five years in the Illinois penitentiary. 
and was sent down there. At that point, he hired uh, or he we represented him on appeal and got him out on appeal bond uh, in August of 69. And uh, he came back uh, at that time. And there was just a huge welcoming for him at the People's Church. Uh, and that's where he gave the that speech, which has been recounted. Fortunately, there was a group that was already uh, doing a documentary on Fred before he was killed and they were present that night and took down that speech and I was present with my law partner Flint Taylor and heard this man speak that you know and uh he was really powerful and uncompromising and said you know uh you know uh power you know power you know power for you uh or peace for you if you're willing to fight for it. Dare to struggle, dare, you know, dare to win. If you don't struggle, you don't deserve to win. And he said, uh, I don't want myself on your mind if you're not going to do no revolutionary act. Don't be thinking about me. And so it was a very powerful speech. Uh, and of course, at the end of that speech, uh, he said, uh, this was in, in, in August of 1969. I'm not going to die on a, slipping on a piece of ice. I'm not going to die uh, of a heart attack. I'm going to die of the people's revolution. And why don't you live in the revolution and die in the revolution? I hope we all can live in the people's revolution. Uh, and, you know, and of course, uh, people were standing and, and, and listening to this man. And of course, very much like Dr. King, it was barely three months later that Fred was assassinated on December 4th, 1969. Uh, but he had the, the room uh, and, it, you know, uh, that was my first real encounter with Fred, seeing him, hearing him. And at that point, I had not decided whether I wanted to uh, be a people's lawyer or wanted to be a traditional lawyer. My dad was a lawyer in Atlanta and I had an opportunity to go back and see him. And in the middle of that speech, uh, I'm sitting there with Flint nodding generally. And Fred said to the people in the audience, now everybody stand up. And we stood up and he said, now raise your hand, right hand. And, you know, like this. And I, I did. And then he said, repeat after me. I am. And I said, I am. And then he said, a revolutionary. And I couldn't say it. The words like stuck in my throat. Uh, but he repeated it and repeated it. And by the fourth or fifth time, I guess I was shouting with my fist raised, I'm a revolutionary as loud as everybody else. And I think he, it was a threshold that he took me and many others in that room over. All of a sudden, well, who are you? Are you a lawyer for the movement or are you part of the movement who is a, is a lawyer? And that was my personal take on listening to Fred. And after that speech, uh, in almost the same month, uh, Dennis had found a couple other people and we started the People's Law Office in Chicago, uh, representing the Panthers, among others. Thank God you chose that over the legal route. <laughs> uh, yeah. And anyway, for, yeah. Uh, and Fred had told Dennis, uh, you know, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I just, I don't think there's much enough time. And there was an urgency about Fred and there was an urgency about the sixties. Like we're facing this war in Vietnam. 
we want to support the civil rights movement. What is this country that was supposedly founded on all these principles is dropping napalm on Vietnamese and, uh, you know, black people are living in, in, in a way uh, in human conditions in many cities and not being helped. And of course, in the South, the law was, uh, uh, you know, the law segregated black people in the North, the, the actual, what, what, you know, the reality separated black people. Chicago was a very segregated city. Can I ask when Fred Hampton got on the radar of the FBI and people that are higher up intelligence agencies of the government? He was put on a national uh, list as early as 68 before the, uh, about the time, even before the Panthers started. Uh, I think because of his ability to uh, draw people and move people, he very early was put on their list. Uh, we learned this later in the civil suit, of course, they didn't make it public, but he was a target early on of both the Chicago police uh, and the national FBI's at that time, secret COINTELPRO program. And when did they contact O'Neill? Do you know how they got about getting O'Neill as an informant? The Panthers opened their office in Chicago in November of 1968. Uh, about, you know, that they publicly started their office. Uh, about that time, this young black man, William O'Neill, was charged with uh, car theft or taking a car across state lines, a federal crime. And when he was arrested, he showed a law enforcement badge. Uh, and to many people, uh, somehow this F this FBI uh, agent uh, questioned O'Neill and, and offered him in exchange for not prosecuting him uh, that he should go and enter the Black Panther Party as an informant. And so within a month of the opening of the office uh, in November, William O'Neill walked in and pretended or did join the Black Panther Party. He was recruited by Mitchell, and he was told uh, basically to report on what was going on. Um, but O'Neill had his own particular, I guess, personality traits. He was a street, sort of a street wise guy. And he also was a thief in the sense that he was a burglar and he would stick up people. And even continued doing that when he was in the Panthers and encouraged other Panthers to do that. Uh, I think whether that was his own thing or whether that was the FBI's uh, effort to target the Panthers or the FBI knew he was still doing these criminal acts and they didn't prosecute him for him. But O'Neill had a, a unique sort of street sense. Uh, he endeared himself in the party. He had the ability to fix things. So frequently after the office was raided, he would make the repairs. Uh, and so he, for a while, he had some credibility in the party. He actually was, for a very short time, Fred's bodyguard. And so the FBI was hearing. Uh, and then O'Neill would, of course, like to puff himself. So he would exaggerate on the information he gave the FBI telling them stories about the Panthers, some of which had no basis, but made his him get more him appear more valuable as an informant. And so he could get more money uh, 
from the FBI because he was supposedly giving them credible information. And even after the raid, he got a $300 bonus. That was one of the most, you know, in every law case, there's sometimes what we call a smoking gun or after the raid, well, not only did he get it, he got a $300 bonus, not just for uh, being an informant in the party, but at the request of his uh, supervisor or his control agent, he went in and got a floor plan of the apartment where Fred and his fiance, Deborah Johnson, were living together with other Panthers. And so he got a floor plan that showed all the rooms even the furniture, and above the bed where Fred and, and, and Deborah slept was a bed where Hampton and Johnson sleep uh, with an arrow on it. That floor plan was given by the FBI uh, to the Chicago police, and they, and they had that floor plan with them on the morning of December 4th at 4.30 when they raided Fred Hampton's apartment. Uh, and as you said, Subsequently, O'Neill was given a bonus and an internal document that said, you know, the information from you could not have been obtained from any other source. Uh, it was of huge value. Uh, I guess the value was that they killed Fred Hampton and Mark Clark that morning. Can I ask more about the raid and the people that suffered also that might not get talked about? Obviously, Mark Clark and Fred Hampton lost their lives, but other people were injured as well, too. That raid was a mess. And I don't think really people get to soak up the gravity of it until you watch the video and see the photos. Right. Well, I was on the morning of December 4th, 69, my law partner, Skip Andrews. Uh, as I said, I'd just seen Fred two days before and was supposed to meet him the next day to, to finish the <clears throat> purchase of the Panther office. But Skip woke me up in, in, in six in the morning and said, the chairman's been killed. Uh, there was a police raid this morning. He was already in a suit and tie. And I was, I couldn't believe it that this person who seemed bigger than life, uh, I was now told that he was dead and killed by the police. So I went to the, well, Skip went to the apartment, which the police had left open and also to the morgue with his Fred's family to identify Fred. Um, I went to the jail where three of the people in the raid uh, who had not been killed or not been shot were at the local police station. And just how this unfolded to me was I interviewed Deborah Johnson, uh, who was Fred's, eight, Fred's fiance, eight months pregnant. Uh, with their later born son, Fred Jr. She was in a nightgown. She could see she was very pregnant. And they brought her into the interview room and, and she was in tears. And, 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 you know, and I said who I was and how could I help her and, and, uh, and what happened? And she just looked at me and said, well, the police came in firing and they were shooting and shooting. And our bed was you could feel the bed where we were sleeping, the bullets hitting the bed. But Fred didn't wake up. And I tried to rouse him, and it was very loud. And he sort of half lifted his head up and then put it back down. And then she said, and then the police came, pull me out of the bedroom. 
to undercover to uh, plain police in plain clothes with handguns. They pull me out of the bedroom. Fred, at that point, there was no blood on me. Uh, he, Fred, was alive. And I heard one of the undercover police say, is he dead yet? And I heard two shots. And then the other one said, well, he's good and dead now. Uh, and the bed, of course, eventually, with all of Fred's blood, uh, was left there by the police that morning. So she gave me, gave me a clue of what it was like. There were two other Panthers who were in there also um, who told me their stories. They had been woken up by a knock on the door. Who's there? And then following that, never an announcement by the police, just the police broke in the door and they just heard firing. Um, and there were several times when uh, the firing ceased, but then the police continued. Um, and, you know, they, 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 you know, they described a fire, you know, looks like a, a lot of bullets. Um, and they had seen Mark Clark was standing, but was sitting by the front door. He was security. Um, and he was killed by a bullet probably through the front door. And the only evidence of any shot by any Panther was his shotgun shot was fired into the ceiling in the hallway, which we think was a reflex after he was hit. Uh, and, you know, he didn't fire. It was an involuntary shot. Now that was the we heard about the shooting. We heard about them going room to room. Uh, meanwhile, my other law partners were at the were at the apartment, and the police left it open. Uh, the police instead went on TV and said they were serving a search warrant. Panthers opened fire. Uh, I remember them saying, "There, but the grace of God goes I." None of the police were injured, strangely enough, although the Panthers opened fire supposedly. And Skip and Flint and other people, Skip had the Skip Andrew had the sense to bring a minister and a filmmaker into the apartment that morning, and they filmed it as they saw it when they walked in, including the blood on the bed, blood on the floor. Uh, and Deborah had told me that after he was killed, they dragged Fred's body out like into the hallway from the bedroom, and it was like their trophy. Uh, it was sort of like a trophy kill uh, for them. Um, and then as we learn later, and it, as Skip said, four Panthers were in the hospital. Uh, and so I didn't go see them. I didn't, uh, uh, they were subsequently seen. And the, the worst person, the person, well, because as I said, Mark had a fatal shot. He was killed. Fred did die. And the autopsy showed two bullets at to the head at close range in parallel, totally consistent with what Deborah reported to me of his assassination. Uh, Doc Satchel had several 45 caliber bullets in his uh, colon and in his intestines. And one of the raiders, Gorman, took a 45 caliber machine gun on the raid and fired from the front living room through two bed into the two bedrooms. And there were three people in the first bedroom, one of whom was Doc Satchel. So he was hurt the most. They had to do surgery on him. Uh, he lost part of his colon and Doc never completely recovered. I mean, he was a very slim, thin guy and he had four bullet holes in his stomach uh, going up and down. 
and I don't think his health never really came back. Uh, Brenda Harris, who was on the in the living room, uh, she was shot in the hand. Um, Blair Anderson was shot in the groin. Um, and uh, one other Panther was uh, Verlina Brewer, who was a 14-year, 15-year-old from Ann Arbor. Uh, she was also shot. Uh, so all of these, and then the three people who weren't shot, Deborah and the two Panthers in the room with her, they were beaten up, made to lie on the floor uh, and listened to the police who were celebrating the, the murder of Fred Hampton. Um, and they were all charged then after the raid, the police claimed we didn't know it was a Panther crib, but they took all of their personal weapons, pistols, they one took a 30 carbine, one took a 45 caliber machine gun, and they were claiming they didn't know it was a Panther apartment. They were surprised, but they didn't go in there with that kind of weaponry. Obviously, they knew it was a Panther apartment, uh, and they went in shooting. So among other things, the the evidence, we gathered the evidence, we got an expert there, uh, there were bullet holes, and there we put these wooden dowels through them, and you can tell the direction of a bullet when it from the entry on one side of a wall to the exit. The entry hole is smaller and it's the wood is splayed outward in the exit hole. So we put towels in there and it showed all the all the bullets. Uh, came from the direction of the police, except the one shot into the hall ceiling. And many of the bullets were aimed at the bed where the floor plan had shown Fred and um, Deborah were sleeping. And actually one of the striking pieces of evidence in, in uh, was a reporter happened to be listening to the police radio and heard about the raid and went went to the site of the raid and as he went there, the four police were carrying Fred's body out on a stretcher, and they were all smiling. And that photograph uh, sort of depicted the police was, you know, the police attitude towards they're, Fred. They're still unidentified to this day, right? Nobody's been able to identify those cops that were pulling out Fred Hampton's body. I, I'm not sure. I mean, they were not the shooters. They were not. They were the you yeah. know because they were in uniform. And I don't know to what extent, I, I can't remember whether we identified them or not, actually. Do you know why Fred didn't wake up? I know we've talked about it before, but was that on the basis of the, the second autopsy the family had done, that they found something in his system? Yes. Uh, it was very strange that from the get-go, Fred and, and uh, Deborah and the other two Panthers said Fred didn't wake up. Or he woke up and he like rose halfway off the couch and went back to sleep. When a, set, a, a first autopsy was done by the officials in Cook County, and they didn't find, I mean, they found the bullet well, bullet wounds consistent with what Deborah said, uh, but they didn't find anything other than a system. Subsequently, the FBI, when we had a private autopsy, they found a very high level of cecobarbital in Fred's body, Fred didn't take or use drugs, but it was an amount that would make it put one to sleep and make it very difficult to wake up. And that's really the only explanation we have of why Fred didn't wake up the morning was somebody 
spiked his Kool-Aid or his orange juice the night before. Uh, O'Neill was there that night and left. He's a possible suspect. Uh, so we haven't ever gotten the, an admission as to how that cecobarbital was gotten in his blood. The FBI did a third autopsy and they claimed they didn't find any cecobarbital, but then that was months later and that whether it would have disappeared or dissolved or whatever, is, it was also a question. So uh, who did it? And, uh, you know, we don't have uh, clear proof of how that cecobarbital got in his system. What did Hanrahan do during the trial when all this was being brought up? Well, like I said, Hanrahan, I think he thought he Hanrahan was the heir apparent to Daly. Uh, he was from the same Irish neighborhood from Bridgeport. He went to Harvard. He had been a U.S. attorney. Now he was this prosecutor, the state's attorney. Wait, Richard uh, Daly? He, what? Richard Daly? Yeah, the original Richard Daly. Okay. All right, yeah. Yeah, that's a good. That's a bad guy, right there. Yeah, he ran the city, the boss, and and Hanrahan came from the same Irish neighborhood and was being groomed and was going to be the he was the heir apparent to the original Mayor Daly, um, and he was politically ambitious, and so after the raid, uh, I think he thought killing a Panther would make his political career, so. He holds a press conference three hours after the raid at nine in the morning, and he has the Panther weapons. They did find Panther weapons there, uh, most of which, if not all, were legal, legally purchased. Uh, but they just put out on a table these these weapons that they found in the apartment. And one of the cops claimed, well, uh, I saw Fred Hampton shot at me from the back bedroom. Uh, and so Hanrahan went with this whole story. Uh, and one of the other cops said, well, the woman on the couch, Mayor Brenda Harris, opened up on me as I came in the front door with a shotgun, two shotgun firings. And the crime lab in Chicago had miraculously found that those two shotgun shells came from a Panther weapon, or so they claimed. So our gathering of the, so Hanrahan was talking about how lucky it was that the people and the, the cops who did the raid were assigned to his office. He had a gang intelligence, there was a gang intelligence unit, uh, but that wasn't enough. So Hanrahan had a special prosecution unit uh, set up to do political cases. And so uh, the 14 men from the police, who were police officers, but they were assigned to Hanrahan. So he was taking credit for the raid and talking about how lucky it was that none of the police were injured and it was this terrible firefight and they were caught off guard. Uh, and he, one of the things he, and we were meanwhile gathering the evidence and talking to the victims who were survivors. And they said, no, it was a shoot in, not a shoot out. And, uh, and Hanrahan said, well, we'll prove it. And he, he, he had a, an exclusive in the Chicago Tribune uh, with two a photograph that showed two black dots by the back door. And he said, well, he gave him that photograph. He said, that's the evidence that Fred Hampton fired at the cops coming in the back. So we were there at the scene and we brought a reporter out there and said, look at this. And those two black dots were nail heads. They weren't bullet holes. 
And with that, Hanrahan's whole version began to come apart. Uh, and we brought it, and, and the FBI eventually brought in a firearms identification expert and said those two shotgun shells were from a pant were from a police weapon, not Deborah, not from Brenda Harris's shotgun. And the police still stuck with their story that she fired the shotgun twice at them, but there were amazingly nothing ever came out of the gun because there was no no wall and nothing uh, with shotgun pellets in it. So they eventually dropped the case uh, against uh, the Panthers because the evidence, the lab evidence that Brenda had fired was false and the evidence that Fred had fired from the back door was false and they couldn't prove uh, attempted murder. Uh, nevertheless, you know, uh, Fanny Clark, uh, Mark's mother, Mark came from Peoria, was a sort of a rising young leader there. And of course, I've described Fred Hampton were killed. Doc Satchel was really injured in a way that he'd never completely recovered. And the other people uh, had injuries to their uh, legs or to their groin or to a hand to their hands uh, that have, has caused them some, you know, some physical problems. I think the mental trauma to all of them, including to Deborah, of waking up. I mean, Deborah saw her fiance executed or witnessed it basically, and her son was born posthumously. So I think the experience for all of them shaped their lives. I don't think in 69, we knew enough about post-traumatic stress to probably give them or have them, you know, get some kind of help or therapy for it. So it very much affected the rest of their lives. Do they get any damages covered or anything like that? I mean, I know that doesn't take away of losing a life of a loved one, but it's just anything that at least gets another investigation. So we can at least get it mentioned that obviously COINTELPRO was very active and it was a high part of this program. I mean, in their document states, preventing the rise of a black messiah. I mean, if anything, Hoover's credibility is just diminished from all these years of all these documents. But I'm just hoping something for the family at least can get some type of closure. You know, when they dropped the charges in April of 70, uh, that was good. But then what kind of justice was that? And so the family, the, the survivors and the families, Fred's mother and Mark's mother in particular came and said, and we talked to them and said, well, we want to file a civil suit. We want to sue the Raiders, the crime lab, the phony investigation under a conspiracy that they all conspired together both to murder Fred or and or to cover up the murder. And so we filed a civil suit in federal court. We were young lawyers. We'd never really been in federal court. We got support from some of the old stalwarts in the National Lawyers Guild. And that suit, which we filed in 1970, went on for 13 years. And it was through that suit that we got discovery. And everything we got, they didn't just turn over. But one of the major things we got was a U.S. attorney who didn't want to be, this was Watergate period, and he didn't want to be accused of destroying documents. Uh, he turned over the floor plan. And the floor plan we discovered was written by O'Neill uh, and, and his control agent, Roy Mitchell. And it showed all these things. And 
we took depositions and the FBI said, well, we got this floor plan and we gave it to the police uh, and they had it with them when they went on the raid and the direction of the bullets was very much towards the bed where Fred and, and Deborah were sleeping. So that was sort of the first smoking gun of, of FBI. And so the, no one knew when in 1969, the public, the clandestine COINTELPRO program started by Hoover targeting the entire black movement. They attempted to blackmail Dr. King. And it was, it was aimed at the black movement in particular. Uh, and they talk, talked about the need to neutralize and destroy the Black Panther Party by any means necessary, prevent them from forming uh, coalitions with groups, discredit them. And this this partly this discovery of this program came about because there was a burglary of the FBI office outside Philadelphia. Some people were looking for to destroy draft records and came across these documents that were marked COINTELPRO. And so they began to question it and the church committee was formed after Watergate to investigate illegal actions. So we worked with them, but we also got our own discovery. And uh, what we discovered was uh, one of the COINTELPRO mandates was prevent the rise of a black messiah who could unify and electrify the black masses. And they mentioned that Stokely Carmichael could have been such a person um, and, and, and Malcolm X, except he had been killed by that point. Um, and so uh, we learned, we also got documents showed that the head of the FBI in Chicago had tried to set up a, an assassination attempt on Fred by the Blackstone Rangers. He had sent a letter to Jeff Ford and the Blackstone Rangers on the South Side of Chicago were the most powerful, most well-armed gang. And that's another thing that uh, a little bit of this history was why Fred was such a threat to the police and maybe to the power structure is Fred sought a truce among the gangs, among the Blackstone Rangers and the disciples. And he had some made some progress about getting the gangs not to prey on the community, but to try to serve the community. They actually joined some boycotts of, of unions that wouldn't hire black workers. Uh, and so Fred had the ability, to, you know, I, I can't say that he succeeded. He, the, the disciples said, all right, you can organize in our territory. And Jeff Fort, head of the Rangers said, well, you can come in our territory if you wanna share the dope proceeds. And Fred said, no, we're not gonna do that. But he reached out to them and had made some efforts and had some uh, success in forming a truce uh, with, the, with the gangs in Chicago. Anyway, Hanrahan wanted to rise his political career on demeaning gang members and law and order. And so when his story fell apart, his, his whole credibility, uh, none of the stories about the Panthers firing were supported by the physical evidence at the scene. Um, you know, and we traced the direction of all the bullet holes. Uh, and we estimated between 90 and 99 shots were fired by the police and the only shot fired by the Panthers was from Mark Clark's weapon. But when we started the suit, we didn't know any, we didn't know about COINTELPRO. And when we got it and asked for documents, they refused and they delayed. 
Many of them weren't, didn't come out till the trial. Um, we had a very racist old judge from Alabama. When it finally went to trial, we had an 18 month trial. And while the jury was deliberating, the judge dismissed the case saying there wasn't enough evidence to go to the jury. And it was only because we got a reversal on appeal and a new trial that they eventually settled and, and we got $1.85 million for the combination of the of the survivors and the survivors who were injured and also the families of Fred and Mark. Uh, and, you know, it was a, I think publicly what happened became well known. I think uh, Mayor Daley, who had ruled with a very uh, controlling uh, all, all the black representatives and older people who were, uh, you know, followed the party line and, and were very much controlled by Daley. After Fred was killed, a black community, which had had mixed reactions to the, some of the Panthers, uh, did not accept that a, a, that a young 21-year-old could be murdered in his bed at 4.30 in the morning. So the, for, it, it had a big effect in terms of leading to the independence of black uh, political figures in Chicago, aldermen's, uh, U.S. House representatives, and uh, it was a formed a coalition between sort of liberal whites and, and the black community that eventually got Harold Washington elected the first black mayor in Chicago. So it had far-reaching political consequences. Also, however, the loss of a dynamic leader like Fred, I think, led to more drugs, more gangs, and more violence on the West Side uh, because there weren't uh, alternatives or alternative people were shot or were put in jail. Could I ask what your thoughts are when it's the anniversary, December 4th, and what you want people to remember about Fred Hampton? Well, I think one of the messages is the government kills, and it did, and it covered it up, and it was part of a program. And as you mentioned, the people who'd carried it out were rewarded for it. Uh, their careers, either within the FBI, they had Marlon Johnson, who had signed off on these hit letters, uh, what they what he had sent it to uh, Jeff Fort was saying, the Panthers have a hit out on you. I know what I'd do if I were you. Uh, he eventually became head of the police board in Chicago. And as, as you mentioned, O'Neill got several bonuses. Uh, and we also learned later that these, these when the when they, uh, FBI uh, announced they had a floor plan and sent it up the chain of command, uh, Hoover and his associates, closest to people were, were following very closely what was going on in Chicago and signed off on some of these documents. Unfortunately, uh, we were not allowed to add uh, Hoover initially, and he passed away before we ever took his deposition. Uh, and we didn't get, and we weren't allowed to add John Mitchell and, and Nixon's uh, U.S. attorney. Uh, but we, you know, what did the White House know and when did when did they know it? I think about the the loss of, of, of a beautiful, powerful figure who represented revolutionary change and dare to struggle. And 
I think seeing that has affected my life in the sense of wanting to commit myself to supporting people uh, and groups and organizations and movements uh, fighting for justice. And I think remembering him as somebody, as a symbol of that, uh, you know, uh, sometimes when the case got tough, <laughs> 13 years and being thrown out of court, being held in contempt, you know, we sort of said, well, what would Fred do? He wouldn't give up. And so I think he stands as a beacon as somebody who didn't give out, give up, who spoke the truth. Uh, and, you know, the critical times like now, uh, somebody like that stands out. And I think there's sort of a bond among people, me and my law partners, but me and Pan the former Panthers and among all everybody who knew Fred uh, has something very much in common. And uh, we uncovered a minister who had worked in Chicago who sort of took Fred under his wing when he was still in high school, and he still spoke about what a huge influence Fred had on him uh, and how he had set Fred up to speak uh, throughout the city of Chicago. Um, so it's a reminder of what both the government can do and did, uh, and it's a reminder of an amazing young man whose potential was cut short uh, when he was murdered in his bed at age 21. Uh, Mr. Haas, you've given me enough of your time. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? Yeah. Um, well, I wrote the book, The Assassination of Fred Hampton, How the FBI and Chicago Police Murdered a, a Black Panther. Uh, so you can buy that in any bookstore, local bookstore on Amazon. And I document a lot, the documents that we had. And I tried to write it as a, ended up going back to grad, graduate school and getting an MFA in creative nonfiction to make it sort of a memoir, to tell the story as I and others around me experienced it, not as a legal brief. Uh, so I think, uh, and as I mentioned, a movie was being made about Fred uh, when he was killed. And the movie is called The Murder of Fred Hampton. You can get it, I think, on uh, on YouTube. Uh, and it shows Fred, and it shows that amazing speech that we talked about because they, they uh, were, <clears throat> you know, they were uh, viewing it all. They were filming it at that time. So... And there are various other books about Fred Hampton. I mean, you you can look at him up uh, about the Rainbow Coalition that he formed. Um, and of course, my book um, include many references that that I used and many documents that I uh, relied on and included in in the book. Well, I'm going to link all your links in the description. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you again, Mr. Haas. I really appreciate the time. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.